Peter Walker here and welcome to today's edition of the Transition Guy. Now joining me back in the studio again is John Warrelow. Thank you for coming back in, John. Hey, it's great to be back, Peter. Now today I want to talk about your latest book. And literally, this is really hot off the shelf, isn't it? It is, I mean, yeah, it just came out. Yeah. yeah. It just came out. And it's the art of selling your business. And for me, probably the biggest thing any person in business should be considering is actually being able to sell their business in the end. And it really pains me that I'm looking right now and I'm seeing businesses go for nothing. I'm seeing so many businesses that have been hit by the pandemic. Yeah, that's been unfortunate, but actually they weren't worth jack before the pandemic. The pandemic has just been a good excuse for it to go for what it would have gone, it would have been a good excuse for it to go cheap, basically. And people are just looking at these businesses and preying on these businesses. So what really sort of led you to write your third book? You know, I, I do this podcast called Built to Sell Radio where I've interviewed some 300 entrepreneurs every week. We do a different episode of an entrepreneur who sold their company. And, and I find that most of the guests sell for a pretty typical multiple. Uh, you know, if, if their industry trades at four times EBITDA, they're trading around there. One times revenue, they're trading around there. And then there's this sort of smaller group of entrepreneurs who seem to punch well above their weight. These are people that are trading for multiples of revenue, not profit. They are outmaneuvering. They seem to have, they seem to me at least, to have some sort of magic you know, approach to the sale of their company. And so I started to re-listen to all of those episodes, trying to see the patterns, uh, the hacks, the, the, the habits they adopt in order to punch above their weight. And so that's the book, The Art of Selling Your Business is essentially a distillation of what I saw the best entrepreneurs do to, again, punch above their weight when it comes to selling their company. And what's interesting, though, is that these entrepreneurs we're not necessarily the most remarkable people in the world, in the world, and they didn't necessarily have the most remarkable businesses in the world, did they? Yeah, I mean, not at all. I mean, one business that, that really, you know, I wrote about and, 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 and I think describes what you just uh, said to a T is, is uh, a company called Breedlove and Associates. They are in the business of doing payroll for parents who have a nanny to pay. So, in, uh, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, Peter. Do you have a company called Care.com in the UK? Not that I'm aware of, no. Uh, okay, so Care.com is is uh, is a is a website where you can plug in your postal code or your zip code for our American listeners, and it will give you a list of babysitters in a local area. Care.com was okay. growing quite quickly. And, and Breedlove and Associates was a payroll company. Stephanie Breedlove started this business 25 years ago when she had a kids and wanted to hire a nanny and pay them legitimately. And so she looked around, called a couple of payroll providers, both of which sort of transferred her call dozens of times. And she thought, this is crazy. Nobody wants my business. And the reality was they didn't want her business because it was just one person to pay. And none of these big payroll companies want that deal. And so she went back to her husband and said, you know, like I got treated so poorly from these payroll providers. Maybe we should set up a company that just does payroll for parents who have a nanny to pay. 
Well, 25 years later, the business was a huge success. It was doing $9 million in turnover when she noticed care.com. And she started to look at this business and realized that care.com was growing very quickly and had gotten to a point of having 7 million subscribers. At the time, Breedlight had 10,000 customers. Now, Care had 7 million subscribers, all parents who have a nanny to pay. And so she just did the math and said, if 1% of the 7 million subscribers buy my payroll service, that's a company seven times the size of my business today. It's 70,000 customers. And, um, and anyway, she approached Sheila, who ran Care.com, and they, they ultimately struck a deal wherein Care.com acquired Breedlove's little $9 million business for $54 million or oh, equivalent to six times top line revenue. Like it's a, and again, I don't want people to listen to this and think, oh, I can get six times revenue for my business because that's, that's an off the charts multiple. It makes you know, no sense to any valuation consultant. But what it does do, I think, is define what Breedlove knew, which is that there is a difference between a financial buyer who's buying your future stream of profits. And to your point, many people right now in the, in the pandemic have had their uh, profits reduced or eliminated altogether. And a strategic acquirer for whom your business is worth more in their hands than it is in your hands. And for Care.com, Breedlove's business was worth way more than it was in Stephanie's hands. And so that's one of the things I would, I would encourage your listeners to think about uh, is who's out there for whom your business would be worth much more in their hands. Yeah, and a business is always going to, the value of a business is going to be what someone is willing to pay, ultimately. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I start the, the art of selling your business off with a story about a guy named Ryman. Ryman was an artist in the minimalist time zone in the, in the 1970s time period. And I don't know any, like I'm a Neanderthal, right? Like I don't know nothing about art. But Ryman built or created this piece of art called Bridge. And Bridge, it, when, to my eyes, all it is, Peter, is a, is a ceiling tile. Like one of those ceiling tiles that cheap ceiling tiles that you get in a, in, a, in a hardware store, all it is is a white square on a white piece of canvas. Yeah. And when Ryman went to sell this white square on a white piece of canvas, it sold at a Christie's auction for more than $20 million. Wow. For me, it's a white square. <laughs> it's a ceiling tile. But to somebody, it was worth more than $20 million. And that's, I, I start the book off with that story because I wanted people to know like beauty's in the eye of the beholder and value is in the eye of the acquirer. You're in no requirement to put a value on your business. That's done by the buyer. And, and the less you confine yourself to by pricing your business or putting a value on it, the more you can let the market determine what your company's worth. And that's the interesting thing. So we, now I don't know what your take on this is, but with the clients that I work with, and the majority of clients that I work with are looking for an exit, we typically start working our exit three to five years out. What time span do you think is sensible to start working on a good exit? Yeah, you know, timing is very, is very interesting thing. First of all, when I talk to entrepreneurs, I'd be curious, Peter, if this happens to you, you know, the, the most natural analogy they think of, if they're thinking of a sporting event, they think of the 400-meter relay. 
right? Mm. Where the baton gets passed from the 100 meter to the 200 meter, the baton gets passed. And they think of selling their businesses as something similar, right? You do your turn as hard as you can, run, 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 and then boom, you pass it to another owner and, and they take the baton and off they go. The reality is so far from that. The reality is that there is usually a transition period where you as the seller effectively work for the buyer for a period, depending on the way you sell, whether it's to a strategic or financial, you know, you're likely to have to stay on to realize the value of your company for a period of time. Could be three years, could be as much as seven years in the case of a private equity group. So when I say that to people, oftentimes the blood rushes from their face because they realize, man, I've got to start moving up my sell-by date. And then I say, and by the way, the process of actually selling your company effectively usually takes a year. And by the way, before anyone sells your business, you're going to have to go through a period where we call it pre-diligence, where yeah. they, you're getting the business ready to go to market. And so that could take three, five years easily, right? And so now all of a sudden you're doing the three years pre-diligence, the one year to sell it, four years plus the seven, like that's a decade. Right. So if you want to, if you're, you know, if you want to be on the beach when you're 60, man, by the time you're 50, I would be on my front foot. And, and here's the thing. Pre-diligence is not a, a, a fool's errand or something that is, is, is just some esoteric sort of idea. Uh, it says and communicates to a buyer that you are going to sell your company and that if they don't buy it, you're going to sell it to one of their competitors. And I learned this from Bonnie and uh, Houlihan, who runs a company called Barefoot Wine. I don't think Barefoot's in the UK. Have you ever seen Barefoot Winery? No, I haven't. They sell it at Trader Joe's, which would be, you know, like Sainsbury's or one of the, you know, one of the high street retailers. And they're a sort of mid-level, everyday drinking red wine. And they realized the most natural acquirer for their company was a business called E&J Gallo, which is a large U.S.-based uh, winery. And so the Houlihan's husband and wife team decided they were going to try to sell it. But they knew that they wanted to look serious in the eyes of E&J. And so they did their pre-diligence, the stuff that you work with clients on all the time, getting everything ready to go to market, right? All of the things that they would need, they put it all in, in old school binders, if you can believe it, right? To get, you know, to show them their customer lists and their, you know, what proportion of their you know, customers come from one class. All that stuff was in these binders. And so they showed up at E&J Gallo and, and were kind of ready for the dance. And I said to Hulahan, I said to the Hulahans, like, why did you go through all that trouble if you weren't sure they were going to buy your business? It seems like a lot of work if you weren't 100% sure they were going to make an offer. And they said, ah, John, you're missing the point. We did that for number one, because if they did want to buy our business, we wanted it to be smooth and get maximum value. But the second reason was sort of a hidden secret reason. It was that without having to threaten them that you're going to go to their best competitor, having your pre-diligence done communicates to the buyer that they've got a decision to make, that this deal is not going to be available to them forever. And that if you don't buy them, they're going to go directly to the next biggest winemaker in the United States and let them buy them. And I've always remembered that because I think, you know, with a, with a sale of a company, it's a bit of a dance where, where you want to punch above your weight. You also don't want to look like a prick. You don't want to look like you're, you know, some arrogant person who is going to, it, because that's going to turn off a buyer. But Absolutely. having a very professional pre-diligence package doesn't, you don't have to threaten them. 
I'm going to go to your next closest. You don't have to even say anything. It just communicates very eloquently that you're for sale and that you're going to sell either it's to them or someone else. And one thing, I mean, they're really great points. And the other thing I always say to people, because a lot of people get really put off by the post-purchase relationship, that actually, do I have to stay on? And do I have to watch someone change the business? I spent a lifetime building. And what I say to them is, if you put the work in beforehand and you actually structure your business so you're totally redundant, you actually minimize the time you need to spend in the business once a purchase is done. I love that, Peter, because look, do, take six months and do this work now and get a one-year earnout, or don't do it and get a seven-year earnout. Up to you. <laughs> but do you want to yeah. work for you know the acquirer for seven years or one? Or do you want eighty percent of your of your value to be at risk in an earnout or the other way around? Because earnouts, you know, when you agree to take some of your proceeds tied to hitting your goals, are never ever I shouldn't say ever. Very rarely guaranteed. In fact, they're almost always at risk. Um, and and in many cases, the owner never realizes anything from the earnout because they just haven't structured. I'm, I'm reminded of, of a guy named Rod Drury. Rod built Zero, uh, huge unicorn, wonderful business accounting software. Before he started Zero, he built a company called Aftermail, which was around the time of Sarbanes Oxley. It helped businesses sort of archive their email. And Drury sold this company for what the Wellington New Zealand newspapers reported for was $35 million. He was from Wellington, New Zealand, which is why they reported. In actual fact, when I interviewed Ron, I said, look, what proportion was up front? He said it was $15 million up front with a $20 million earnout. And I said, wow, what was that like? And he said, well, what? I was a young guy at the time. Someone handed me a check for $15 million. What do you think I did? You know, I, I enjoyed myself. I relaxed. I had a great time. I, you know, and it was months later that he started to think seriously about hitting his earnout. The problem with earnouts is they're oftentimes like gated, meaning yeah. the budget to hit the next gate is released when you hit the first goal. And if you miss the first goal, like a ski racer going downhill, if you miss a gate, it's, you can't recover. In equal way, what Rod found is that he missed the first gate, this first goal, because he just wasn't, he wasn't in the headspace. Long story short, he left the business without earning any of his earnout. He left leaving $20 million on the table. Now, he's gone on to have a tremendous success instead, but that's what happens when uh, you haven't really got all of your ducks in line up front. And you know what? That is so common. Mm. And I come across I come across people that sold their business and I and I'll speak to them, I'll interview them, and they have seller's remorse. Because actually yeah. they say that the years that they worked doing their earnout were the worst years of their life. And it isn't just about reducing your earnout either. What people need to realize if they're working on their business three to five years before, it's the multiples that go up as well, because they're pulling the right levers to increase their multiples. So it's a, so a double-edged sword. Not only can yeah, you reduce it's, it's, your... No, go ahead, okay. Peter. Keep, keep, no, yeah, I was going to say, not only do they reduce the earn-out period, but they increase the amount of money they're going to get paid in the first place because they're doing the right work to maximize their value. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing I would say, 
is that I think some degree of earnout is very common, in particular in service businesses where the owner is is certainly uh, needed to be retained. Again, your job, I think, as an entrepreneur is to, is to maximize your upfront payment and minimize the proportion of your deal that is at risk and earn up. But again, they're, they're very hard to kind of completely eliminate. One of the things that, that I think I would encourage your listeners to consider is tying your earn out to something you fully can control. Because earn outs are typically earn, your earnings as a division of a company, of another company, if you're acquiring company. And as soon as you're acquired, you give up the ability to run your own bookkeeping. Effectively, most people, that gets centralized into head office. And once you lose that, it's very hard to control your earnings, right? It's, it's, it's being expressed by head office. And, and that's what can cause a, a tremendous amount of turmoil in these earn-out agreements. And so I would try to tie it to something other than earnings. You may try to be able to tie it to top-line revenue, which is something you will likely be able to control sales of your company. Um, I'm reminded of, of Rob Walling, who I mentioned in our first interview uh, that we did together. Rob built Drip, sold to $2 million in revenue, and sold it to lead pages. Uh, he was entertaining offers that were in the kind of 8 to 12 times revenue, like an amazing, amazing exit. Lead pages wanted to do an earnout with him, and he said, oh, I'm a bit squeamish about that. But he did agree to an earnout, but he tied it to the launch of a feature that Lead Pages was very keen for him to launch. He was a software engineer, right? Rob is a really good uh, you know, software guy. So he knew with a high degree of certainty that he could launch that feature. It wasn't going to be incumbent on somebody else or required to get other people to. He knew he could, he could launch it. And so he tied his earnout not to earnings or revenue, but to the launch of that new feature, which did and achieved his earnout. I mean, there is so much to cover. So for everyone listening in, tuning into today's episode, at the end of the day, if you want to know more about building your business, getting it right, ready for sale, definitely read John's book, The Art of Selling a Business. And I take it if people want more information, they can head over to your website. Builttosell.com. Yeah, yeah, little yeah. little icon that says free gifts top right corner, and we've uh, got a whole bunch of gifts put aside, uh, set aside for folks who download uh, them at uh, at builttosell.com. And the nice thing is the book's available through Amazon. It's also an Audible. So for those people that don't feel comfortable reading, you can listen to it and actually just subscribe to John's podcast channel, Built to Sell Radio. You have lots of great interviews there. You're bringing great guests on. For someone that's seriously thinking about selling their business, there's no better place to be, right? Well, that's very kind of you to say. Yeah, that's Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, Peter. Now, Fran, listen, it's been a pleasure having you on board. I'm looking forward to our webinar in the future. So, again, for those of you on today's episode, if there's anything that resonates with you, head over to Booker.com and get in touch. Maybe you've got a question for John. Maybe there's something you want him to cover on the up-and-coming webinar. Drop me a mail, let me know, and I'll make sure it gets woven in and we will cover it on our webinar. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you once again, John. And finally, remember, failing to learn is learning to fail. Please stay safe.